And I would like to give, to give a talk, about 40 minutes, based on two, two parts. One, how Catholic social doctrine in Serum Novarum shifted during the last century. And second, what is, in my point, important for uh, importance of centesimus annus. I call Rerum Novarum as a cornerstone of social doctrine, Catholic social doctrine, and centesimus annus as a flagship of Catholic social doctrine. So I will give a talk and then we'll have an occasion to exchange our views. Yeah, you received as a gift free <laughs> the, the shortest summary it is possible about evolution of Catholic social thought. It saves you many hundreds of pages to read. <laughs> so, yeah, so if one compares the social encyclicals published by popes since 1891, one shall notice not only an evolution in their attitudes toward the real political and economic situation, but also in their postulated social solution. It seems that an analysis of the contents of the encyclicals gives one the right to propose the statement that the general view of political economic life in the first encyclicals is rather similar and quite comparable to the model of democratic ca capitalism. It means economic political system based on democracy, private property, free exchange, and respect for the right to economic initiative. However, the later period, coincidence with the beginning of Second Vatican Council, witnessed gradual but consistent change of this stance. At first, the social documents published in this period barely perceptibly remove themselves from and then act with obvious distance towards the social solution of democratic capitalism. This tendency is brought to a halt in the first two social encyclical of John Paul II and turned around in Centesimus Annus. But it comes back again in Benedict XV's Caritas in Veritate. Looking through particular encyclical of, and as, as at the role, of, uh, the role that states should play in social life, one can perceive crucial shifts in accents. As might be ex ex expected, all the popes have shared an opposition to more extreme liberal concepts of the nation and recognition of its key role of social life. However, the very manner as well as scope of acting for a scene for the state differ according to various encyclicals in a crucial way. In the beginning, there was scholastic vision of the state understood as the societas perfecta, political institution responsible for the realization of the common good of all citizens. In this vision, shared by both Leo XIII and Pius XI, the state should not only react in a cases of trespasses upon this good, this political body should also actively support it 
its construction for focusing particular attention to the poorest social classes. There is less accent on the direct aid and more on creating conditions for a better future. The holidays of such an approach, which in practice could be transformed into statism, leads, however, to strongly balanced emphasis of the servile role of the state, as well as its decentralization, based upon the principle of subsidiarity. In the vision, the primacy of the human person in relation to the state is stressed, together with primary role of the family and any voluntary associations that should be supported by the state. Since the creation of thick network of grassroots social ties is one of the sources of its strength. In time, the underlying of role of mediating structures as well as subjectivity in, in, in regard to the state gradually weaken, while the task of the state becomes mainly the protection of increasingly larger package of laws understood as the rights of the individual. The linking of these rights with responsibilities still clearly visible in John 23rd encyclicals become nearly absent in the teaching of Paul VI. But it returns with John Paul II and is undirectly present in Caritas in Veritate when Pope Benedict speaks about civic society. Together with progressive globalization, successive encyclicals also consistently strengthen the role of the state into the international dimension. Rises not only when it comes to maintaining peace in the global dimension, but also in international production and economic exchanges, as well as providing aid to weaker nations. The conviction that interested countries are above all responsible for the good use of the aid received and also for their own development is emphasized in John 23rd's teachings, but weakens with Paul VI, and then again returns in the teaching of John Paul II. Completely opposite trend can be seen when it comes to the problem of planning social development, which, according to all the encyclicals, is a prerogative of the state. Still, in Popularum Progressio, the planning and co coordinating role of the state, present, uh, present in prior encyclicals, shifts to the direction of centrally planned social life, while the areas of state intervention are clearly expanded. The meaning of this role for the state and the view of central planning are again clearly halted in John Paul II documents and return with Benedict XVI, also with his idea of a strong world authority. The liberation of specific political systems, and especially about democracy, are almost non-existent in the first encyclicals, though Leo XIII allowed for a multiplicity of political forms, which was not novelty in these days, and removed from the odium that it had borne since the French Revolution. 
an essential change took place during World War II, when experience of two totalitarianism uh, regimes pushed Pius XII in series of his famous radio messages to react positively to democracy. John XXIII took up the thinking of these predecessors and Second Vatican Council would exp expand even further. However, this stream of thought is virtually absent in the encyclicals of Paul VI, but strongly returns, even more bolstered by anti-totalitarian message in John Paul II writings. And then is slightly marked in Caritas in Veritate. It is also in inter interesting to compare the attitude of popes to capitalism and liberalism versus socialism and communism. This strong difference between the approving, albeit critical, uh, stance of Leo XIII's and Pius XI's towards capital capitalism and the, the unilaterally negative stance of both popes towards socialism clearly narrows in John XXIII later in the text of Paul VI, criticism of, of socialism seemed even more moderate than his critical viewpoint on capitalism. The situation changes again with John Paul II encyclicals, uh, showing that practice of real socialism and Marxism goes much less with church social doctrine than with capitalism. Intricately connected with this development was the postulate of a third way. So it might be impossible to enact at the moment a Christian model of social life vying with both capitalism and socialism. If for Leo XIII and Pius XI this way was to be patterned after the brotherhood system of Middle Ages, then in John XXIII one cannot find either model based on the past or future project, excluding the general idea of world order. Paul VI also did not construct a, any theoretical model. Nevertheless, so, though obviously not associated himself with socialism, looking, however, as approving at, at its institutions, he strongly criticized capitalism as much on the level of practice as on theory. Such an unequivocal criticism meant that thinking about a third way was inevitable. This view, in less radical version, is present in Caritas in Veritate, while John Paul II, in Laborum Exercise, returned to the position of John XXIII. And then, what is the key point here, in Solitary Socialis, he openly said, also in Centimus Annus, rejected the construction of the third way as a task of Catholic social doctrine. Analyzing views on economic life, private and public property, free competition, central planning, fiscalism, taxation, accents on production and distribution, it is easy to note, particularly 
if we add the teachings of Pius XII and Gaudium et Spes and Octogism and, uh, Advenience, pastoral letter, to our analysis, a shift away from recognizing the solutions and institutions traditionally connected with capitalist democracy towards solutions connected with socialism. In the key matter of private ownership, the pontificate of John XXIII is a turning point. Up until then, popes devoted much time to the issue and referred positively to the institution of private property. John XXIII acted similarly in Materiat Magistra, one of whose subheadings is even titled Confirmation of the Right of Ownership. But in Patrim Interis, there is already significantly fewer mentions of property, though the Pope stress that it's the right to ownership springs from human nature. It's also the case of Gaudium et Spes. Not unless in Populorum Progressio, private property is already described in a rather negative way. 32 years later, Pope Benedict XVI, in his encyclical, almost don't mention problem of private property. At the same time, it means early 60s, the popes began to consistently and increasingly and more strongly emphasize the social dimension of ownership. It is not a case of centesimus annus. Remembering about universal destination of goods, John Paul strongly stresses the private property supports the most effective utilization of resources, and what is more important, that private property is a basis for the autonomy and development of each person. So this abbreviated survey, we have this one page here, of position taken by the preceders and successor of Pope John Pope, de demonstrate, in my opinion, the meaning of centesimus annus. If one should acknowledge Reum Novarum as a cornerstone of Catholic social thought, we may recognize centesimus annus as a flagship of modern Catholic social doctrine. And it should, however, maybe I just to to prepare two points about the meaning of centesimus annus. By calling our attention to new things between millennia and by taking up a truly innovative perspective of the matter at hand, centesimus annus itself signals something new in social teaching of the church. And its significance extends beyond the boundaries of Catholicism. Commentators usually pay attention to the economic and political reality, emphasizing the positive, obviously not unconditional, support for democracy, and positive, also unconditional, attitude to free market economy. For this reason, I will focus on one more basic philosophical problem and one important distinction which, in my opinion, belongs to outstanding achievement of Centesimus Annus. <clears throat> what determines the essential significance 
of this encyclical for social teaching is the constant way which it links this teaching to anthropology. One can say even uh, methodological anthropocentrism is at work here. First of all, due to the fact that the focus and fulcrum of this reflection is the sub subject of social life, in other words, the human being himself, it is also typical optics of Pope Francis now, manifested in his sermons, homilies, and interviews. Such methodological anthropocentrism opens up a broad-based meeting ground where many people, Catholics and persons of our confessions, religions, worldviews, may comfortably come together. Secondly, consistently applied such an approach liberates the church teaching from the complex tangle of historical circumstances that had in former times caused to adopt a negative position, even and often in inimical position towards democracy and economy. To approach things from the perspective of anthropology, however, makes it significantly easier to recognize that the fundamental institutions of democratic capitalism are themselves the products of Christian culture, and they, they are arose in Christian environment. Therefore, the idea that had been previously been, been present in the church, that these institutions were genetically amoral or intrinsically opposed to the teaching of the Gospels, simply does not, does not hold. The question now is whether, it's not whether to accept democracy or free market economy, but how to build sound democratic capitalism on the basis of Christian, Christian anthropology. By the introduction, the person, the human being endowed with transcend, transcendental dignity, but wounded by the sin and fulfilling himself through work, cooperative solidarity, and creative exploitation of human freedom and intelligence, always based in cooperation with grace. Into the world of democratic and free market institutions, we can free ourselves from ideological description of political and economic reality. It was not always the case in the 20 centuries of church history, and also it's not so clear in case of Caritas in Veritate. The anthropological perspective enables us to view the arena generated by democratic politics and free market economy as a place where it is possible to, to realize the Christian vocation. We also put in in a position to take up a meaningful and positive discussion regards how to shape the social life. Connected here is the relationship between to socialism, which was seriously wounded in year 1989, but still didn't die. Numerous social analyses and promises were formulated to appeal to Christian ears notwithstanding. This anthropological approach allows us to discern the basic anthropological flaw, error, anthropological error in socialist thinking 
and to understand the unavoidable degeneration of any economic and political system constructed according to its standards. Social sensitivity, which is good, and option for the poor, which is important, what was emphasized especially by Pius XI and John Paul II, are not the socialist property. The rooted in the Christian environment. Thanks to such diagnosis, Centesium Musanus, while criticizing concrete manifestations of capitalist reality, avoids the temptation of statism, as well as the traps of excessive socialization and central planning. Nor does it become entangled in argumentation about the possibility of Christian socialism or the quest of third way. In the end, it becomes clearly apparent that to avoid the abuses and pathology of capitalism, it is necessary to undertake intensive work in the field of education and culture, always defending human dignity and promoting the social life principles of common good, solidarity and subsidiarity. It is not the intention of the church to declare war on the institutions of democratic capitalism or to impose social institutions believed to possess a more confessional character. Rather, the point is to protect fundamental human rights and to evangelize the human being living in democratic world and working within the free market structure. Uh, further weighty achievement of Centesimus Annus found in its return to organically construed view of social reality. This holistic view has already been present in Rerum Novarum and Quadragesimo Anno. It doesn't mean systematical or, or total view. But what I want to insist in as the last point is the, the great achievement of Synthesimus Annus was a clear distinction between faith and ideology. And I guess it's a 46 paragraph, very, very important achievement. This issue has never before been so unambiguously taken up in the church teachings. Now this topic was touched several times by Pope Francis, and its presentation is significant and even vital for several reasons. First, this distinction, faith, ideology, make us, makes it possible within the church herself to distinguish between radicalism based on the Gospels, great, important, and Christian ideological radicalism. The borders between them are not hard and fast, and to an outsider, it might seem is that there are many similarities. Both positions, for instance, strive for orthodoxy, and both are characterized by profound commitment and sometimes by heroic witness. In effect, this means that until recently, no systematic distinction had been drawn between them, this 
faith and ideology. And for example, it took many centuries in the church to distinguish between zeal of Giovanni Bernardone, called Little French, Francesco, later known as St. Francis, and zeal of Thomas de Torquemada, Dominican famous inquisitor. In their times, Francis was often perceived as a harmless hippie living on the border of the church, while Torquemada was perceived as a high dignitary and outstanding theologian and pious religion, religious working with the mandate of Vicar of Christ. So this distinction is so important for us. The clear distinction drawn up <coughs> by John Paul II thus sensitized the church to necessity of protecting the de deposit of faith entrusted in it, to it from the danger of reduction to ideology. At the same time, it makes possible a theological crit criticism of religion's ideology. As, as a great theologian, Cardinal Walter Casper wrote, anyone who thinks, quotation, who thinks that Christian freedom means to pass beyond the rule of law in the name of European society, liberated from any and all domination, anyone who promulgates such a utopia as a pretext for destabilizing legal, legal structures and working for revolutionary changes, even if only by his speech, that the person cannot claim any support neither from the Old Testament nor from the New, nor from the early or early or pre-Constantine church, intended that person betrays the message of Christian freedom and deform it in the name of ideological goal that are and remain foreign to it. This distinction between faith and ideology brings much need, needed new support to the task of adequately describing and the, the effectively circumventing the polarization of integrist and fundamentalist on one side in the church and modernist and liberals on the other. A dangerous polarization present and active in the church since enlightenment and very present in post-Vatican era. This kind of dichotomy inevitably galvanized both positions as well as fed to antagonize between them. In the light of this distinction introduced by John Paul II, it becomes easier to perceive the drawbacks of the justification and arguments on both sides, as well as the serious dangers just flow from the acceptation of one of the other position in the ideological version. This distinction also between faith and ideology enables us to claim to the people beyond the church and uh, that Christianity in its essence has nothing at all to do with totalitarian aspirations. For the majority of believers, this point is instantly clear. 
but not so for people outside the church. Not only is the point that not immediate sin, but what is worse, the suspicions that totalitarian aspirations are at work in the church activity, that the church aspires to ideological vision of social life, has historical justification. These fears can find confirmation not only in a widespread variety of false cliches and stereotypes, but also through the presence of some highly visible growing number groups of activists who reduce Christianity to fundamentalist ideology and whose activity easily become a justification for aggressive reaction on the other side. Needless to say, all this great hinders the real evangelical world. The introduction of this demarcation between ideology and faith can therefore help clarify the genuine nature of the church and Christian faith by dispersing unnecessary fears by demonstrating the church ability to recognize the danger posed by religion fundamentalism. And the ideology that flows, therefore, in the contemporary world, the church, in the unambiguous opponent to such a sort of fundamentalism, this distinction between ideology and faith puts a relation between the church and the world of liberal culture, politics, and economy to a new light. To a large part, after all, the world, world arouse, arouse in opposition, often in unjust and brutal opposition to Christianity in the 19th century, and particularly to Roman Catholic Christianity. This opposition, insofar as it was direct against an idealization of faith, most clearly in evidence in the religious wars, had weighty argument in its favor. In such a situation, opposition brought renewed vitality into all spheres of social life. However, by opposing faith itself and the church as such, this opposition yields also to an idealization in the name of freedom, equality, and brotherhood, it did not stop the packing mortified priests and nuns onto overload barges and drawing them insane. With the slogan, a free church in a free nation, it confiscated church possessions, closed hospitals and schools, and disbanded religious orders. From the perspective elaborated in Sentes Musanus, one can easily perceive that the real op opponent of the liberal democracy, as it took shape in the past Enlightenment era, was the face reduced to the level of ideology. Looking now from the church's point of view, it becomes easier to recognize that it was neither the free market economy, nor democracy, nor liberalism, nor capitalism as such, that was antithetical to Christianity, but rather and only the ideological interpretations of them. Moreover, it becomes clear, though admittedly in the last centuries it was 
clear to almost no one that the, they were con conceived with Christian culture and con constitute one of the most significant manif manifestations. So once again, if Rerum Novarum may be named a solid cornerstone of modern Catholic social doctrine, over 20 years, Centesimus Annus appears as real flagship of this doctrine. And probably to all Christians, it, it was the first document who show in a creative way how we can fulfill his or her Christian vocation in an environment of democratic capitalism. It is the first and the only one document of Magisterium Pontificium at that kind. Therefore, during Francis' pontificate, we will receive an answer to a fundamental question of Catholic social thought, because as I wanted to show in my book, but also in this talk, we have two different branches, two, two wings of Catholic social doctrine. First, more realistic, based on holistic approach and Christian philosophy, anthropology. And second one, which is more selective and more influenced by contemporary uh, currents of thought. Will the Catholic social teaching continue more realistic reflection of Leo XIII's, Pius XI and XII, fullest expressed in Centesimus Annus? Or will the Pope from Argentina will enroll in a more visionary way of thought presented in Popularum Progressio, Octogesimo Adveniens, and Caritas in Veritate. There is also more, however. Another fundamental question touches the problem that a vital moral culture is essential for the effective functioning of institutions of the democratic capitalism. Now, that does not always have to have a strictly Christian inspiration, but it does implicate, at least in the principle, an anthropology which is coincidental with Christian thinking. The great paradox is that, that liberal political and economic institutions in themselves are not capable of creating such a culture. Last decades, when the children of year 68 began the long march through the institutions of power to create radical social changes, shows with, with growing clarity and even more contemporary postmodernism as a theory and Pope hedonism as a practice of life inevitably leads to abandonment of these institutions. Last financial crisis and uh, clashes in the EU, which we experience now, are only the beginning of this process. And so next fundamental question arises: Will these institutions lead to erosion, or will they open themselves up to transcendental dimension of values, and at least coherent with Christianity, anthropology? We'll discover the answer to this question in the years ahead. And to some extent, we will be its co-creators. Uh, today is Wednesday? No, Tuesday. 
Yeah. Because Monday, Mon Mondays, Wednesday, and uh, Fridays and Sundays, I am an optimist. But but <laughs> today I am not an optimist. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I appreciate the diagnosis given by Oswald Sprengler in his Der Untergang des Abendlandes, Downfall of the Occidents, that there is no future for, for Western culture. But maybe tomorrow I will be an optimist. So, <laughs> so it means that very interesting times await us. On the one hand, I am reminded uh, of an old course, may you have to live in interesting times. On the, other, on the other hand, providence has put before us a really creative task. It's exciting. We are at the crossroads, I guess, as a, as a Christian and Western culture. Thank you. <laughs>